And if you would, give me a moment to pray for us and open our hearts to God's word. Lord God, we thank you for this opportunity. Again, still our hearts, open our minds to hear what you would have to say say to us, Lord Jesus. May my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing unto you, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, briefly, by way of introduction, some of you I have met and some I haven't, I'll just tell you just a tiny bit about myself. I am a chaplain at Mount Pleasant Hospital. I live in Somerville, South Carolina, actually. Uh, A priest in the diocese here, pastor to church in Michigan, but this is home for my wife, so we moved back here in 2016, and I went into chaplaincy at that time. My wife Elizabeth and I have two sons, Aaron and Jonah. They are... Uh, 14 and 11, and Elizabeth is a nurse for, um, actually she works for Berkeley office building up there where they're building the new hospital in Cane Bay. So we live in Cane Bay, go to St. Timothy's Anglican Church. Some of you know Gary Beeson, I think he's been here before to fill in for Sean as well. And so it's because of Gary that I'm here today. He said, you know what, I'm really busy, man. Why don't you ask that David guy if he will preach? So here I am before you. I do love to, to go about the diocese and meet people since I'm not pastoring a church. It gives me the opportunity to go to all different kinds of places and meet people and uh, experience new things. So let's experience some new things together. We're going to talk about baptism today. I understand you're working through the Nicene Creed, and today we're on that phrase, we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And it's something that's kind of interesting to me. I come from a Baptist background. So baptism has been something I've had to deal with numerous times uh, on my road to to faith itself, but also into becoming an Anglican. So it's um, quite a big deal to me. And one thing I do know about baptism is we can say way more about it than I have time to tell you today. So I'm going to try to touch on some highlights, and I'm going to use my own journey as an example of that. And some of the things that God has done and taught me um, through my journey and also through theology that I have read, because when I became an Anglican, baptism and the Lord's Supper were huge differences that I had to overcome to become an Anglican priest. So I had to study this quite a bit, and I hope that what I say today um, is meaningful to you. So my journey began with baptism with the church. I was around 14 years old. This was 1979. I'm dating myself a little bit. And going to a Southern Baptist church, that's my family's background, so when we were kids, that's where they took us. And I don't know anybody from Baptist, Pentecostal, those types of roots where there's a believer's baptism, a call to conversion. Okay, so we have a couple of people that understand that. So there's that whole, you know, the sermon is all about the transformation and bringing you to that decision point to where you will you know, call upon Jesus for salvation and then follow that with baptism is a sign, is a witness for what, what you just did, right? So that's a public profession of your faith. So I kind of went through that at the age of 14, but it caused me to ask the question later in adulthood, did I truly have a conversion experience? Was it conversion or was it conformity? Was I just conforming to what was expected of me as a 14-year-old, peer pressure from the rest of the youth group? Other folks are doing it, so maybe I should do it too. I don't want anybody to think that I don't believe, so maybe I should go this way. So was it conversion or conformity? So let's first look at the gospel of Jesus 
St. Matthew and see what it is for Jesus, okay? And we'll start there because this kind of helps illustrate it for me. So John's baptizing in the Jordan for the repentance of sins, right? We acknowledge one baptism for the repentance of sins. And that's what John is doing. And yet he says, there's going to be somebody that comes after me who's even greater than me, whose sandal I can't even be fit to tie. And Jesus comes up and he says to John, I need to be baptized. So what is Jesus doing here? Is he converting or is he conforming? Well, it's Jesus, so I doubt if he has to convert something since he is the basis of our faith. Jesus already believes he is the Lord, so to say that Jesus has to convert to a faith isn't quite right. But then also to say that he's conforming to something kind of misses the mark too because he comes up and if he's conforming to the pressure around him, then why is John saying no? See, when you read the passage and you see what happens, John says, no, 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 you should be the one baptizing me. It's John that says, I'm the one that needs to conform, not you. And Jesus says, no, this is to fulfill all righteousness. This is the law. So one thing we need to remember about Jesus is Jesus is walking the road that we walk. He comes in every way that we do to experience everything that we experience. He is later on down the line going to die for our sins on the cross. And he's going to die for those sins, not as a sinner, but one who stands in as a sinner for us. The same is true here. Jesus is coming to the Jordan to be baptized in fulfillment of the law. He is doing something to comply with his Father's will. And later in Matthew, at the end of Matthew, in, verses 20, in chapter 28, verses 19 to 20, he's going to tell us to do the same thing. He's going to tell us to go out, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there's an expectation there that baptism will be something that we will do in obedience to the Father. Now John's baptism for the repentance of sins was actually based on a uh, pre-existing form already. Baptism already existed in, in Jewish culture. So obviously John wouldn't be doing it if he didn't know how. But the thing is, is it was something that was done for Gentiles. It wasn't done for the Jews. The mark of the covenant for the Jews was circumcision. Gentiles didn't receive circumcision because they weren't to become a Jew. They were come, they're they're going to become God-fearers. And so they're going to come in and they're going to have this mark. They're going to be baptized, be purified, be washed clean of all those sins in this ceremonial act. That's what John is doing in the Jordan River. But John is telling the Jewish people, we all need to be doing this. We're all sinners. We all need to be washed clean. So there's a precedent already being set in John's baptism that will become the covenant mark for all people who become Christians. So Jesus goes up and he complies with the Father's will to obey God, to be baptized as any other sinner would, and to be washed clean of those sins as any other sinner would. So he again stands in for us in baptism as he does in the crucifixion. So, if I think back now to when I was 14 years old, I can say I was baptized to conform to the peer pressure around me. I didn't do it to obey the will of God. 
I didn't do it because I really felt like I had a true conversion experience. I kind of believed something, but I didn't really know what that faith was yet. And so I did it to conform. Jesus did it neither to conform or to convert. But there is a question. If I did it to conform, and I'm in a denomination that believes in believer's baptism, then when I do convert to Christianity, do I need to do it again? Do I need to be rebaptized once I do become a believer? So that's the next question I struggle with. So we flash forward about... Oh, 20 years. I am now 34-ish, 1999 time frame. I had been through a divorce, really struggled with that and the pain of that, and started going to church and started actually believing something. And then I came to this point where I realized, God, I don't know what it all means, but I'm giving it up to you and I'm going to trust in you. That word for faith, trust, belief. I gave it all to God and I said, I believe. But then I started to struggle with the baptism thing because the baptism was supposed to be the sign of the conversion. And I'm in this Baptist church and I start asking these questions. Well, when I did it before, I didn't really believe anything. So should I redo it now? Well, let's move up to Ephesians chapter 4 and remind ourselves what that has to say about it. Do you remember what Paul says? He tells us to work in a manner worthy of our calling, to be humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then he says, there is only one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all and in all. So I think Paul's telling us a couple of things here. First of all, he's saying there is only one baptism that means anything. And that's baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we all come forward for communion later, we make that statement that if you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, regardless of what church you belong to anywhere worldwide, if you're baptized in that manner please come up and have communion with us. If you're not, then then come up for a blessing. But what we're recognizing is is that baptism is into a faith and a Trinitarian faith. So there's only one type of baptism. But Paul also recognizes the fact that there is really only one baptism. We don't need to be baptized over and over again. Think of it like this. How How many people in here are married right now? Over the years... Has your faith, your dedication, your love grown deeper? Do you think that back then when you took those marital vows that they weren't valid? Well, I really wasn't feeling it then, so it didn't count. <laughs> so now we've got to get remarried. Now, there are people who do a marriage vow renewal ceremony in honor of their marriage, but they're by no means saying, I wasn't married to you all those 15, 20 years ago, but now I am. Right? Well, baptism is the same thing. Sometimes we go into it and we don't really have the type of faith then that we do now. I mean, you think about children. We baptize our infants, right? And they don't know what they believe yet. 
if they're a little bit old enough to understand what's, you know, the conversation between mom and dad and them, they're believing what their parents believe, not something that they believe because they came to believe it on their own. They're believing what they're told to believe. And then later down the line, they start believing something on their own. And we as parents are praying, please, please, please let it be in Jesus. All right, believe that if you believe anything at all. It's something I'm going through right now with my son who's 14. He was baptized as a, as a two-year-old, actually. Oh, my gosh, if you would have seen the scene. It was straight out of a movie. He was fit to be tied. He's two years old, and he has a two-year-old temper tantrum. He's crying. He's wailing. We're out in the lobby while other kids are getting baptized. It's his turn. We bring him in. He's struggling and fighting against me, and I'm having to hold him down. And I hand him to the priest, and he literally collapses in his arms. priest baptizes him and gives him back to me and he's all peace now. I mean, that's the Holy Spirit. I get angry to a stranger. The opposite reaction would have happened normally when I handed him to this person, right? But God took over and made a covenant with my son. We'll talk about that in just a minute. And we stood there in front of the whole church and we welcomed Aaron into the church And we vowed together as the church and as the parents and the godparents, grandparents, everyone, that we're going to do our absolute best to raise this child in the faith so that later down the line, when they get old enough to understand what that means, they'll claim that faith as their own. And when that happens, then what do we do? Or what do we do sometimes to help that happen? We do confirmation, right? So then at that sometimes, you know, around 14, 16, 18 years old, Some people think the later you wait, the better, because the more they'll understand it. They go through confirmation and claim whether or not they truly believe this thing. That's the marriage vow renewal. The covenant happened way back then, and now I'm claiming it as my own. So in this one Lord, one faith, one baptism, what truly is happening? I think, first of all, we're obeying the command of Christ in Matthew 28, to baptize in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The same as Jesus did. So we're obeying the command that we're going to do this thing. We're bowing together as the community to raise the children in the faith. You can see this throughout the New Testament. Children are baptized along with the whole household, and they don't really believe anything yet. But when the household comes to the faith, the children come with it. And then we work together to raise our children in the faith. And then the third thing is is we hope and we pray that that conversion will happen. And baptism is a sacrament, is a sign of that conversion happening. God starts it then, whenever that baptism occurs, even as a child. And God's working. There's a gift of faith that's offered. There's a grace there. And on and on and on. And hopefully the children will make claim to that faith. There's also the Holy Spirit happening. And I I really think that that's a whole separate sermon. I mean, there's a whole lot that can be said about baptism and the Holy Spirit. But let me sum it up like this. When Jesus is baptized in the Jordan, immediately after that, the Holy Spirit comes down upon him as a dove. So in my belief and a lot of Anglican theologians, what happens when we are baptized, when we profess faith, you know, whether it's as an infant or as an adult, the Holy Spirit is already at work. We're not waiting later on down the line for the Holy Spirit to show up. 
because we do something different. Now, sometimes what happens is, is the Holy Spirit does something different with us, and we receive this blessing or this gift of the Holy Spirit, and we experience things in a new way, but the Holy Spirit's at work all along. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you like this. Think about Jesus. What's the first thing that Jesus does after he descends upon him on the Jordan River? He takes him into the wilderness to be tempted. And so what we're doing sometimes is we're making the Holy Spirit all about that joyful feeling. You know, it wells up inside me and, and I just, I'm so excited. And so that's got to be the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit was already at work in Jesus in the wilderness. And it wasn't a fun thing. And that's what happens to us sometimes. The Holy Spirit starts working. So I don't think there was really a need for me to be rebaptized again. I'd already made that vow. I'd already entered into that covenant with God. But more importantly, God entered into it with me, and He's the one that keeps the covenant. I can't keep it on my own. You can't be married on your own. It takes two people to be married at all, and it takes God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to make that marriage work. And when you put your direction that way, then the marriage is a blessing. So that brings up the third thing, because I mentioned that we covenant together, God covenants with us, and does something new within us. So I'm baptized a second time. I didn't need to be, but I don't think it's also a sin that I need to repent of. But then I go to seminary several years later. This is about mm, six, seven years later. I go to seminary, and in seminary, I'm drawn to the Anglican faith. I'm drawn to it for a lot of reasons. I'm drawn to it because when I saw people come up for communion, I could see something different was happening to those people. These people weren't just coming up here to do something that Jesus said, do in remembrance of me. Yes, we do it for that reason. But I could see the look on their faces. I could see the hands outstretched, the receiving of the gift, that Jesus was doing something within these people, and I wanted some of that. And so in seminary, I started exploring Baptism and, and the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper was kind of an easy hurdle. Yes, there's more to the Eucharist than a memorial. There's also the spiritual presence of Jesus Christ happening there. But going from believer's baptism only to infant baptism, that was a rough jump. I mean, I had been believer's baptism for almost 40 years now. I had a professor who said, David, why don't you read some of this? And he gave me some books to read. And I discovered the story of the Exodus. And I'm not going to go through that story. We don't have enough time. But to sum it up, it does represent baptism. The Egyptians are after the Hebrews. And they come to the Red Sea. And the waters are parted. And the people pass through the waters. Every single member of that nation, no matter the level of their faith or no faith at all, is taken out of the slavery of Egypt across the Red Sea in a symbolic baptism of sorts. And they journey and eventually get to the Promised Land. And here's the Jordan. And the spies go into the land and they say, well, this, this, and this. Joshua Joshua and Caleb said, no, 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 no. This is God's deal. Let's go. Let's go do it. We got it. He's got it. And a lot of people say, nope, no thanks. So people start dying in the wilderness. But then the day comes where they get the second chance to cross the Jordan River. 
And they go into the promised land. Now, not everybody had a chance to go. Some people refused God and died in the wilderness. Others made a claim to that faith of God and crossed the Jordan in another river that was parted for them into the promised land. Covenant baptism is based upon that imagery. Every person is given the opportunity to come out of the slavery of Egypt. But not every person will claim that faith and go into the promised land. The same thing will happen to people who are baptized. But the thing is, is we are not up here to judge whether your baptism is good or not. We're not even here to judge whether the person who baptizes you is good or not. It's based on God's grace gift to you. And he says, here, I'm covenanting it with you. Will you covenant with me? So everyone gets that opportunity. Confirmation is that time where that opportunity is brought into a reality. And people have the opportunity to make that decision. I think for my son, it might have been a little early. I did it when he was 13 years old. I didn't think so at the time, but now that I look back on it, I think he might have still been doing what I wanted him to do because I'm daddy and he wanted to please me. Do I think my son has faith? Yes, I do think my son has faith. Whether he truly grasps it and understands it, I don't know. But I know one thing, his baptism is valid and God's doing a work in him. God's doing a work in us. I want to conclude this way. There's a wonderful little book, and I, you know, I encourage you to study baptism more uh, to understand its full beauty. Michael Green, uh, he has passed now, but he's an Anglican professor, theologian, pastor to church in the ACNA, actually. At one time, he was a co-rector of a church in um, North Carolina, I believe. And he wrote this book, Baptism, Its Purpose, Practice, and Power. And I want to read you the concluding couple of sentences of this book to summarize our sermon today. There is only one Lord, there is only one faith, and there is only one baptism. Though that baptism is a many-splintered thing. As Christians, we are called to live out the dying and rising life of that one baptism in the power of the Holy Spirit who has grafted us into the body of Christ the one holy Catholic and apostolic church of God. Amen.